You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. And the whole sermon today is basically this. How do we think about living in a culture that views many of our beliefs as Christians? If you're a Christian here today, if you're not, we want to say welcome. We want to say welcome. But if you're a Christian today, we have to think hard about, and this, this sermon series has, has shown a huge light on the disconnect between some things that are foundational for the Christian worldview and then some things that are foundational for a secular worldview. So this should be no surprise to us. But I want to give us just a few examples of where this kind of hits home in terms of that contrast today. And I don't say these things to stir up fear because Christians are not a people of fear. If Jesus rules and reigns, and he does, there's nothing to fear, right? And I don't share these things to stir up antagonism towards our culture. We're not a people who are antagonistic to Madison. We love Madison. Okay? God has placed us here. The book of Acts 17 says that we've been ordained the time and the places in which we live. So God has put you in Madison for a purpose. Not to hate Madison, but Christians are people of first and foremost humility and love and truth. We don't hate the culture around us. We love in word and deed. We're not known for what we're against. We're known for what we're for. Okay? But I I, want to give you a couple examples just so we can think about, okay, yeah, this is where we live. And some would say the, the Christian worldview in light of what we teach about gender and sexuality is maybe weird, strange at best, hateful, or bigoted at worst. This is just a couple quotes taken from uh, a PDF that was disseminated to all public school teachers, and I, I, probably beyond that as well, on how teachers in the public school system in Madison are to talk about gender. And sidebar, the Vine Church is not a homeschool-only church, a private school-only church. We don't divide over educational choices. So just, this is not uh, to say pull your kids out of public school if you send them to public school. That's not why I'm bringing this up. But here's what it says. In Madison School District, we will strive to model gender-inclusive language that affirms the gender diversity of our students, staff, and families. And, And here's the quote. And disrupts the gender binary. Furthermore, it says teachers, or anybody reading this, are called to, quote, teach about gender. Include books and lessons that are inclusive of all identities and send messages of empowerment to students. So translation, no matter what families say or what people of faith might say, we're called, if you're a part of that, the, the school district, to teach this message. That there is no such thing as a, a gender binary So I don't, this isn't a scare tactic, okay? 
I don't bring this up. I just, I just bring it up not to get you all riled up and scared or whatever. Um, again, we're not people of fear. I bring this up, though, to just, just to paint a picture that there really is a, a, a bifurcation happening in our culture. These two options are mutually exclusive. What we've been talking about these last eight weeks and what Madison School District says are mutually exclusive. Now, listen, this is not to say that Christians don't have a category for people that are very confused about gender, right? And it's not to say that we can't be people that are very compassionate for people that might experience some real confusion, like, man, I feel this disconnect between what it feels like what my brain says and what my body says. Like, like we can have compassion for that, okay? Let's just be really clear about that. You can have compassion without endorsement. See Jesus in the Gospels over and over again. But I just bring this up because I want you to see and feel that what we've been teaching in, the, in these last eight weeks is very, very different from the culture around us. Some would say hurtful, hateful, or bigoted. And we would say, actually, it's loving to tell the truth according to how God has designed human beings to flourish. But so then again, you feel where we're at odds. So I want, us to, I want to equip us in this last sermon in this series to think about how do we go about living as Christians in this kind of context. And praise God, this is not foreign to the Bible. This has been happening for 2,000 years or, or more. And God has given us a book in the New Testament that deals with this from beginning to end. It's the book of 1 Peter. It's the book of 1 Peter. It gives us a very, very helpful blueprint. Different issues that the people then were dealing with, but same blueprint for how to think about living in a context where you're seen as really weird, where your beliefs are very strange in some respect. So here's what we're going to see in 1 Peter. I'm just going to give you the outline, then we're going to get into it. Number one, what he wants us to see is you got to know that you're in exile, You are not home in this culture. Number two, you you have to know who God says you are and trust in that, meaning you have to know your identity. Number three, he calls us in light of those things to pursue lives of holiness, especially lives that look like love for one another in the church. And then number four, this holiness is going to make you stand out and give you the opportunity to declare and and demonstrate your faith. All right? Four things we're going to see him say. I'm going to go fast because we're running out of time. Okay, so hold on. Let's concentrate and and let's get into this. Okay, number one, if you have your Bible, look at verse 1. And then jump down and look at verse 17. He says it twice here to underscore his first audience. He says, Peter, verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Your chosen people who aren't at home. That's what an exile is. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him uh, as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So he's just saying, you're not at home. This exile is imagery from the Old Testament. God's people in the Old Testament lived in the nation of Israel. 
He gave it to them. Okay, real fast overview of the Old Testament. Okay, real fast. And, and God's people, he just said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to be with you and I'm going to make your name great, promises to Abraham. And what happened is they completely failed and they assaulted God in their sin. Gross wickedness. God's people doing the opposite of what God called them to do. God said, at a certain point, I'm going to kick you out. Your punishment is going to, you're going to be kicked out of this land that I've given you. Century after century after century, he endured them until finally it was like, nope, we're done. And so foreign armies come in, take them out of their land, out of their home, remove them to Assyria, to Babylon. No more, God, no more, no more people at home. And that's all that Peter is saying here. You feel that. You feel that. Different deal, you're, you're, you haven't been kicked out of your land, but the emotions are the same if you're living in ancient Middle East and you've been converted to Christianity out of pagan religion in the ancient Middle East. It's that same feeling. You're not at home. I feel this disconnect. And he's just saying, embrace it. This is who you are. You're not at home. Own it. Okay? So since this is true, what are you to do? you got to know who you are. You're not at home. You're in exile. Number two, what does he tell him? In light of the fact that you're in exile, what are, you, what are you supposed to do? He tells him, know who you are. Know who you are. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. So who are you? I have been born again. Identity statement. See it? Right out of the gate. Get this clear, he says to his first audience. Right out of the gate, you got to know who you are. If you're in exile and the culture thinks you're weird, you got to know who you are. If you're a slave to approval, you're going to just die in this culture. But you're not a slave to approval. Who are you? Well, look, verse 3. I'm born again. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. I have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiling, and unfading. So I'm born again. I have an inheritance, meaning I know who my father is. I know what I'm inheriting. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. I am guarded. So I, I know who I am. I'm born again. I'm not who I once was. I have an inheritance. There's a future blessing coming that's promised to me. And I'm being guarded. I don't have to take care of myself. God is, God is my guardian. God is my defender. So we're not home yet. It's easy to complain about being exiles. It's easy to be hopeless in exile. It's easy to hate and loathe and endlessly ridicule the surrounding culture. He's saying, don't focus on that. Focus on who you are. Focus on who God says you are. So he's saying, you're in exile. Yep, got it. But you got to know who you are as you're in exile. Okay? Remember what Jesus has accomplished for you in the gospel and what he did in the gospel in space, time, and history where he bore the wrath of God in our place that our sin deserves and then rose again from the dead, conquering death. All of that news that happened in history is accomplishing something for you. It's accomplishing a new identity for you. you got to get that clear. You have to know who you are. It will never make it. So in light of being in exile, in light of knowing who you are and who God says you are, then what? Well, he tells them. 
Jump down to verse 13. Therefore, prepare, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. All right, so I'm prepared. Verse 13, I'm going to be, so, be clear-minded, sober-minded. I'm going to set my hope fully on the grace that I've been given so I know my identity. So I'm not going to conform to the passions of my former ignorance. What, translation, be holy. Be different. In light of where you are and then in light of who you are, what? Be different. Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. You can't go back, verse 14, to your former ignorance. You can't go back to that. It's not one of the choices. Remember the gospel and let that fuel you as you move into the future. Gospel remembrance and meditation always leads to holy living. How could it not? And one of the ways that we see in the book of 1 Peter over and over again that this holiness manifests itself, that really, that like it looks like something tangibly in our lives, is in our relationships. Holiness for, 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 for Peter translates always to how you love one another, right? Look, jump down to verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a, here it is, for a sincere brotherly love. Here's the command. Love one another earnestly from the heart, from a pure heart. Since, it's true that you've been born again, so since you have a new identity, how could we not? Right? How could we not? We haven't been born again of, of perishable seed. You can't touch it. But, but, of imperishable. It's never fading. It's never going to go away through the living and abiding word of God. So this is who you are. You, who you are has been accomplished by the gospel. And so it has to translate into how we live. I just remember in, in our old neighborhood, before we moved in, like people didn't really talk to each other. And we're like, man, we just want to like demonstrate like loving relationships. And we just initiated like a, a simple open house and people came and people talked to each other. And it just seemed like from that little, little tiny effort, the Holy Spirit just did something. And people started coming together and they started seeing that like, man, there might be something unique about your family and your kids. There's something unique about them. This isn't a praise us. It's just the Spirit of God is doing something and people recognize it as unique. They're dying for, for real relationships in a culture of superficiality. So Peter wants his people to see that your relationships and what people see in your relationships in the church is a really big deal. Like if visitors come in here on a Sunday morning, do they notice anything? Can they smell something different? I mean, as a metaphor, right? <laughs> Can they smell something different in how we carry ourselves with one another? If they, if they show up to your city group, can they be like, man, there's something different here. It's not like it is at the office. There's something different here with these people. They love each other differently.
So know that you're in exile. Own it. Embrace it. Number two, know that you are who God says you are, your identity in Christ. And then thirdly, we're going to pursue lives of holiness that look like loving each other really well. And then he jumps into verse 2. We're just going to look at quick. We're not going to do the whole book because we don't have time. But first two chapters, let's give you this flyover. Look over uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. So you're in exile. You're not at home in this culture. You're rejected. That's normal. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Here he says it again. You got a new identity. What's your identity? My identity is chosen. My identity is precious because of what Jesus has done. Feel that? He's just, he's just rehearsing these themes again. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So what does that say? It says relationships. We're built up together. We have to be united and strong together. Your relationships are a really, really big deal in the church. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're being built as a spiritual house. See how he says that? You can go back a slide, Emery. Built as a spiritual house. See that? So it means you have a home. You don't feel at home in the culture, but what he's saying is you got a home, you got a house. That's why the relationships are a big deal. You're not spiritual orphans. You have a place. The church, a chosen people set apart by God. You're not isolated. This is a group, a church exists to glorify God and be a city on a hill, like a beacon in the night in the culture. You're not a home in the world, but you should have a home in the church. You're not a spiritual orphan, but you have a home based on loving relationships. Now, yes and amen, tragically, so many churches have failed at this. And a lot of us have horror stories. I hope you don't have them from the vine, but man, we're not perfect. We're not perfect. And we can repent when we fail. So this is, this is an ideal that we strive for. Tragically, this has not been the case, but Peter calls us to it. And then we repent when we fail. So Peter's just saying, if you know who you are, this is going to lead us together into a spiritual house that's strong. Yes, you're in exile. you got to know who you are in Christ. If you know who you are in Christ, it's going to lead us to be together like living stones that are built up as a spiritual house is what he says. But again, this identity always leads to action. So jump down to verse 9. This identity of the church in a culture in exile is going to always lead to action. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So what's the action? Here it is. That you may proclaim the excellencies. We're people of declaration, right? Declaration, demonstration. Here's the declaration part. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Do you have an identity, Vine Church? You do. You are part of God's people, right? Once you had not received mercy, what does it say? 
But now you've received mercy. So I am a person of, I've received mercy. God has been merciful to me. I am a person of mercy. That's my identity. And so I'm going to declare something in light of my identity. Right? So that's our action that we are to proclaim. This is who we are. Let's see, a church with nothing to say to an onlooking world is not really a church. That's why we say in our mission statement, we are people who declare and demonstrate. When was the last time you had the chance to declare why you're a Christian to someone who doesn't know Christ? Great question for us. But again, he hammers it. He hammers his his themes. He doesn't want us to forget Jump down to verse 11. So the next verse. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. There he says it again. You're in exile. He's like, your life matters. How you demonstrate, not just declare, but how you demonstrate really matters. As sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see it there? See how demonstration is so important? Declaration and demonstration, right? The importance of our holiness as a church is a big deal. He's saying, don't go the way of the world. If you go the way of the world, you don't have any witness because they'll just look at you and go, well, you say this stuff, but you just act exactly like us. So why would we want to listen to you? Make sense? Think about how important our city group serves could become in the coming decades. How you visibly love your non-Christian neighbors. Think about how important that could be in light of what Peter's talking about here. That they may see your good deeds. And glorify God on the day of visitation. Meaning, become Christians and give glory to God when he returns. Here's here's a poignant example that I think is so, so important for us. And then I'm going to wrap this up because we need to be done. Um, An onlooking secular worldview could look at the church on the one hand and look at a white supremacist group on the other and give the same label to both groups, bigots. Then the question becomes, is there any distinction in behavior between these two groups? Well, I hope so. Like last time I checked, the white supremacist group, they're not hanging out with single moms in crisis. They're not advocating for international students. They're not hanging out in the nursing home with with, with older people that are just shunned and ignored. They're not dignifying homeless people on the square. So an unbelieving world should be able to look at these two groups that they might think one for their sexual ethics, one for their racial ethics, and they want to call them both bigots, but be able to go, I want to give them the same label, but man, their behavior is so different. Does that make sense? I think that's really where the rubber meets the road here and what Peter's talking about. That they're going to see and smell something different about those church people. They might, they, they might not hear the words, but they're going to see in their lives, man, I want to call them bigots, but their lives don't line up with that typical category, right? 
That's what Peter's getting at. If you live in exile and you know who you are in Christ, and that's going to lead you to lives of just radical holiness, radical difference that looks like, man, a sacrificial love for one another. This church family is so tight, you can't pull us apart if you tried. And we practice repentance and, and, and forgiveness with one another. Our relationships are a really big deal. And so then that gives us the ability to have confidence when, to speak into a, a, a culture where we're in exile and live lives of, of genuine holiness. That makes people scratch their head and go, man, something's different about these people. That's what Peter's calling for this people then, 2,000 years ago. And he says the same thing to us today. And by the power of God's spirit and his word, man, I just say, let's go for it. Let's go for it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Would you help us? We need your help to live in this world. And, and we're so thankful for the evidence of you doing amazing things through your word and your spirit already. And we just ask that it would continue in Jesus' name. Amen.